Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm Tess. And I'm John, and it's time for another deep dive into microbiology history. Yes! I heart history. And we chose this topic because we were trying to be lazy. We thought, well, we already spent 20 hours doing research for this last summer in 2020 and wrote three complete blog posts on it. So it should be quick and easy, right? It's just translated into a podcast. But my micro friends, that is not what ended up happening. You see, I went to the library, which is never a good idea if you're trying to be lazy. And I found a biography on Sir Alexander Fleming. The book is called, to no one's surprise, I'm sure, Alexander Fleming, The Man and the Myth. And it is by Gwyn McFarlane. And it's a beautiful book, 300 pages on Alexander Fleming and his life. And I read it in 48 hours, which I don't think I've ever done before, not even when I was reading Harry Potter. And I read those books pretty fast. Man, she powered through it too. It was like she was sitting there all day for two days. I just loved it. And I'm so excited to share this story with you. It is so bizarre, completely absurd. But today, without further ado, and so we don't spend another entire weekend researching. Which you know we could. We present you a microbial production of Penicillin's Improbable Journey to Revolutionizing Modern Medicine. Bum, bum, bum. This is truly a bizarre story, guys. At every turn, you're like, really? That happened? That's real? It's a story of accidents, neglect, and improbable coincidences. Penicillin features a handful of zany characters that imitate a handful of stereotypical personas, such as the materialistic Americans, the pompous German, the polite Brit, and is wrapped up in feuding countries as the Allied forces held nearly covert operations to keep this mold juice hidden from the militant Nazis. The story is riddled in secrecy and unknowns, as some aspects of the story were hyperbolized by the media, while others were lost to history. In my lab, we used to joke about the science gods, praying them to build a shrine in their honor. Did you ever do that, John? No, I never built a shrine. But did you pray to the science gods for your experiment to work? No, I pretty much threatened to burn the lab down if anything bad happened. But I was just saying words. <laughs> yeah, just like us praying to the science god. It's just something we do when things like never work. And I don't think the science gods ever really listened to me. And from the sounds of it, didn't really listen to you either. Not for six months, that's for sure. <laughs> but I think they certainly took a liking to our Scottish hero of today's story, Sir Alexander Fleming. Fleming is often quoted as saying, I did not invent penicillin. Nature did that. I only discovered it by accident. And this is true. As far back as 1871, Burden Saunderson, a medical student, was describing molds of the penicillin group inhibiting bacterial growth. Joseph Lister, in 1882, a pioneer of antiseptic technique, once used penicillium culture to treat a chronically infected wound. Wow, really? I never heard that story before. Yeah, as far back as 1882. Do you know what life was like in the 19th century as far as medicine? Uh, cutting limbs off. Yeah, a lot of cutting limbs off. And like the whole goal of the game was how fast you could cut a limb off. Because if you took too long, the person would bleed out and die. Or get gangrene. Yes, gangrene was certainly a thing. This was definitely, it's just such an interesting period because 
at the end of the 19th century here, you have sort of this realization of microbes and them being connected as infectious agents, but not really knowing what to do about it or how best to deal with things like gangrene or um, tetanus or tuberculosis. But in the 1860s, anesthesia did become a thing, so limbs being cut off didn't have to go quite as fast. That's very true. But I'm sure a lot of those soldiers in the Civil War didn't get a chance to have it before their limbs were hacked off. Very true. And one in four people were still dying from hospital gangrene. And then you have to remember that the 1882, 1860s, we're talking, this is, this is Florence Nightingale time too, where we're just sort of learning to wash our hands. Yeah, this is really where medicine was starting to transition from like a dentist being also a surgeon and a doctor to actually like professional doctors. Right. Yeah. In the 1870s, that's when germ theory really became pronounced in societies. So I wouldn't say that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. Some people like to say it was serendipitous, but I find that is just to be a fancy word that sounds better than part neglect, part accident, and a big heaping pile of pure dumb luck. In reality, this discovery, which increased life expectancy, decreased childhood death, and revolutionized medicine, was nothing more but an accident. Well, I'll give a little more credit. A series of accidents that all had to occur at the precise time to produce marketable penicillin, making so many of our lights attributed to a series of fortunate discoveries. But first, John, could you tell us a little bit more about penicillium fungi? Sure. I mean, obviously, penicillium is a genus of mold. It is a genus that's important in, of course, making antibiotics, what we're talking about today, organic acids, and things like cheese, like penicillium rock 40. And it is the most common uh, fungi responsible for spoilage, too. Some even prevent decay, like penicillium chrysogenum, which makes a glucose oxidized that is used as a juice preserver. Juice? Like an orange juice? Yeah. Wow. And the species that Alexander Fleming discovered was penicillium notatum. But today, we use penicillium chrysogenum. The same one from the juice? Uh, No different one well, i think it's a different one okay i may have written two of the same ones <laughs> i sounded kind of the same uh yeah so should i go into the mode of penicillin or what it is sure all right before i do this i kind of need to go over a little bit of bacteria morphology so generally bacteria are characterized as gram positive and gram negative What's the difference between gram-positive and gram-negative? It's due to their cell wall. So gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria have this layer, peptidoglycan, and it's on the outside of gram-positive bacteria. But it's not on gram-negative? It's sandwiched in between two membranous layers, actually. Oh. So this molecule is linked together, and... Obviously, gram-positive bacteria, well, I shouldn't say obviously, gram-positive bacteria only have a cell wall and no membrane on the outside, so it has a lot larger layer than gram-negative. They have a lot tougher cell walls, right? Right. It's a bigger barrier for... Exactly. And so, peptidoglycan is actually made up of sugars and amino acids. 
and they're linked together by an enzyme called penicillin binding proteins. Mm-hmm. And I also want to say addendum that not all bacteria are gram negative or gram positive. There's some some gray area. Yeah, like, like everywhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the most common one that you see in textbooks when describing bacteria, but you have things like mycoplasma, which don't. Oh, right. And so penicillin is part of what they call the beta-lactam family. And it's called that because it has a beta-lactam ring structure. However, when you see it depicted, it's a square in the middle of the molecule. Huh. Did they not understand the difference between what a ring is and what a square is? Uh, that might be just the drawing description of it. I guess they don't want too many circles, huh? Because most bacteria are drawn as circles. Exactly. Okay, fine. And this beta-lactam ring is the active component. The beta-lactam square. Exactly. And so this antibiotic doesn't actually kill bacteria directly. It inhibits their cell growth. And they do this by binding to the penicillin binding protein and stopped the linking of these peptidoglycan uh, molecules. So when a cell is dividing, it can't make more of the cell wall. And this causes the bacteria to be introduced to outside factors like osmotic pressure, stuff like that. And it eventually leads to the cell death. It can't handle this. Hmm. Yeah, the cell wall is what protects the bacteria from the environment. And they can be very fragile to the environment. Right. And so I also have to say that penicillin is mostly effective against gram-positive bacteria. And they have a very limited effect on gram-negative. That's because they have that outer cell membrane. Can you give us an example of what gram-positive bacteria are versus gram-negative? Sure. So gram-negative, the most common one I could think of is E. coli. Mm-hmm. And that usually causes gastric issues. Yeah, causes a lot of gastric issues, which can, you know, disseminate throughout the body. And then you have others like uh, staph or strep. Which causes... You'll see stuff like... Strep throat, MRSA. Skin infections, they can even cause, like, food poisoning. Strep can also cause, like, rheumatic fever. Mm-hmm. If untreated. So it could get nasty. Yeah. Okay, so you ready to talk about Alexander Fleming? Yeah, let's talk about Alexander Fleming. Okay, our story begins on the 6th of August in 1881. This is the date where Sir Alexander Fleming was born. He was one of eight children. He was the seventh one. He had one younger brother. And his four oldest siblings were actually half-siblings of himself. Now, if you look at a picture of Alexander Fleming, you kind of see a crook in his nose. Have you ever noticed that? Actually, no, I haven't. So, I, I'm more focused on his uh, white hair because it kind of looks like a, a grandfather figure. Yes, yeah, so he's got a very distinct look. But next time you look at a picture of Alexander Fleming, look at his nose. A lot of people thought he was a boxer because it looks like, you know, he's been punched in the face one too many times. There's a little crick in his nose. And this was from when he was younger, he was in the schoolyard, and he was running around the corner, and another kid was running around the corner, and they smacked right in front of each other, and he had a broken, bloody nose, and it forever, like, changed his profile for the rest of his life. Hmm. So he was not a boxer, but he kind of looks like one. You look <laughs> at it. Look at his picture. I'm going to have to. So he grew up in Scotland, but later moved to London. He left school at 16 to work at a shipping office for four years. He didn't really like the shipping office, and from all accounts, it didn't really seem like he had very much aspiration to do anything. He was just kind of like, well, this is here. I guess I'll do that. And 
Then his brother is like, you want to go to med school? And he's like, yeah, I guess I could do that. But Alexander Fleming was brilliant. He was always top of his class. He always had the choice to go and do whatever he wanted. Maybe he was just never challenged enough to kind of or be motivated to go do something with his intelligence. So as different things came up, he would be swayed one way or another with very little argument. And fortunate for us that he was like this. So when he entered med school, it was after four years of working in the shipping office, he was 20 years old. He was two to three years older than the other people at the college, which I've always kind of been the youngest person in my group. But John, you've been an older person. Not that you're old, but... <laughs> what you what you saying? <laughs> you, you've been in situations being a little bit older than fellow college kids. What's that like? For my undergrad, I kind of felt out of place, especially like, I don't know, people were a, lot, a little bit more crazier, especially during parties. And I felt like I had already gotten over that. Yeah, so I, I kind of think that must be how Alexander Fleming felt kind of being with these 17, 18-year-olds, and he was 20-something going to school. But he would win a number of awards and a number, a number of fellowships as he went through. So he had the choice to go to whatever medical school he wanted to go to. And there's a bunch in, in the UK that are phenomenal medical schools. And he chose to go to the youngest of all the schools, St. Mary's Hospital. When he was asked, Alex, why did you go to St. Mary's Hospital? He said, one time, I played a water polo match against them. I don't really know how that equates to deciding to go to med school and spend the next 51 years of your life at, at the hospital, but, I mean, that's, that kind of proves a little bit about... Water polo? Yeah, he was, he, was very into, he was very big into sports. He played a lot of sports, and he was a great sportsman. But, yeah, that's what he said. I played water polo against them, and they were, had a good team. So, yeah, for whatever reason, he ended up at St. Mary's hospital and this becomes our first accident but it goes a little bit deeper than this not only was he just convinced by his brother to just on a whim go to med school and on a whim to join St. Mary's hospital because of a water polo team but once he passed his initial exams he could then go to another school he decided to remain at St. Mary's hospital or rather a friend of his decided that he was going to remain at St. Mary's hospital you see Alexander Fleming was a great marksman he was very um, competitive and uh, really influential or really beneficial to the rifle club at St. Mary's. And so when Alexander Fleming was kind of deciding where he was going to go for med school, one of the people on the rifle club said, hey, uh, Alexander Fleming, you don't want to go to any other med school. Why don't you just stay here? You can stay on the rifle team. I'll set you up with our, my friend Elmerth Wright. He's got a lab. He can pay you some money while you study for your exams. And then you can decide what to do after that. And Alec, being who he was, was like, sure, I'll do that. And so he joined the lab of Sir Elmrith Edward Wright. And these two would become lifelong friends. They worked together for the next 40 or 50 years. Elmrith Wright was very into vaccines. He wanted to, he had this his own inoculation center at St. Mary's Hospital, in which Alexander Fleming became a member of. And this is my favorite part about Sir Elmuth Wright. He was a, a little bit of a grumpy old man, I think. So one day, he was talking to a superior military officer who asked him, so, he, he, so Sir Elmuth Wright gave a little speech about vaccines and inoculations for the military. 
And so the military officer asked if he had any more to say. And he replied, no, sir, I have given you facts. I can't give you the brains. (laughs) That's a great statement. Yes, which there are a few people in today's society I'd like to say that to as well. So Sir Elmuth Wright was very big into science. He was a huge science advocate, huge vaccine advocate. Um, But he does have a little black mark on his life as well. He was a pretty big woman hater to the point where his wife actually left him because he hated women so much. Yeah. And there's at one point a woman does come work into his lab and he was very not happy about it. So this brings us to the pre-war years. And we're talking World War I. So this is pre-1918 flu. So in 1908, Alexander Fleming passed his MBBS examinations, which meant he was a full-blown surgeon, but he stayed uh, for researching with Wright. And there was a cartoonist, H.M. Bateman, who once said of Alec Fleming that he was the only surgeon never to have done an operation because he had passed all his examinations but never stepped foot into an operating, what do they call it, an operating theater? Operating theater. Yeah. Well, I had no idea he was a surgeon. Yeah, he passed all the examinations and did everything to be like, had all the the letters at the end of his name and everything, but he stayed on as a researcher because he loved microbes so much. So in 1909, Alec published a paper in The Lancet for his vaccines against acne, which are caused by the bacterium Coronibacterium acnes. He then worked on syphilis, as so many people did in the early 20th century. And this was a time, so in 1910, was when Paul Ehrlich came out with his 606 compound, which was later called Silvaricin. And this became kind of the silver bullet, if you will, for syphilis treatment, which was severely impacting people across the globe. Now, Silvaricin was toxic to humans, but not as toxic as what they were using before mercury and arsenal. So this was very exciting, and Fleming actually became one of the first people to treat a patient in Britain with this new wonder drug. Really interesting to hear, like, all these behind-the-scenes of what he's done. Yeah, he— Everyone focuses on penicillin, but it's also cool to hear all these other things, too. Yeah, he really had his hands in uh, a number of things. So during the First World War, Wright, the leader of the lab, pledged his lab to the war effort— in hoping to inoculate soldiers against typhoid and septic infections, which had some pushback from society. A lot of people were not, it didn't seem like a lot of scientists were super pro Elmer Wright, nor were they super pro vaccines at that time. Um, a lot of people were not on board with the efficacy of vaccines even back then. So Fleming was tasked with swabbing the wounded, the infected, the dead to determine what are the top infections of the soldiers so they could create vaccines against them. Do you know what the top organisms were? Oh, man, that's a really hard one because World War I, everyone's in trenches and it's so dirty as is. Mm -hmm. Um, Is staff one of them? Yep, staff and strep. Okay. Um, Pseudomonas? Nope. Oh. Uh, Klebsiella? Nope. Uh, tuberculosis. No. Clostridium welchi and tetanus bacilli, which causes tetanus and gangrene. Okay, that makes sense. So these, these, what, do you know why they make sense? Well, I mean, 
You're exposed to like a lot of metal out there. So tetanus is found on like rusty metal. It's also found in horse manure. Huh. So clostridium and tetanus are part of horse manure. And in the fields where they were kind of rolling around a bunch of times, they were rolling around a bunch of horse manure. And so you could get gangrene and tetanus and staph and strep from, um, from just being in the trenches. At the time, people were treating infectious diseases with antiseptics. But Fleming and Elmreth were like, um, I think this is not working. This is actually harming people. The antiseptics could not reach the deep crevices where the bad bacteria were. They were killing the white blood cells, which you kind of need those to heal yourself. The antiseptics were being removed from the body, like the fluid and the pus that was coming out of wounds would, would constantly be pushing out the antiseptic. So Alexander and, and um, Elmuth Wright were trying to run around and be like, I don't think that we should treat these patients with antiseptics. And the surgeons were like, no, no, this is the way we do it. You, you, you bacteriologists don't know anything. Which brings us to our next great discovery by Alexander Fleming. Are you talking about lysozymes? Yes. So lysozymes are something that we make. Um, they can be found in tears, mucus in the nose, and even in our own gastric secretions. They're an important part of the innate immune system. So these molecules have an effect on bacteria. Specifically, they have an effect on the peptidoglycan wall. Remember, peptidoglycan has sugars in it, and this breaks down some of the sugars in the cell wall. And as a response, what happens? These bacteria lice, and they spill their insides out. This is an important part of the innate immune system and can modulate the immune system's response. Because these molecules that the bacteria release. Lice? Lice. <laughs> yeah, they, they lease them out to the body for a while. Oh, yeah. What, is, what do they pay for rent? Uh, free, actually. Whoa. But it could cost them their life. So, you know, it's a roll of the dice. Mm, I take it. So they lice these um, molecules and our immune system can recognize them. So then they mount an immune response. And today, we, still, we can use it in research, too. And it's used to lyse bacteria, specifically for things like if we're doing uh, protein research, we can look at the protein's bacteria. Cool. Yeah. So do you want to hear how Alexander Fleming discovered lysozymes? Did he sneeze on a plate? So that is potentially a myth. I mean, again, no one really knows what he was doing in his lab. He often worked by himself into the wee hours of the night. But yeah, so there's a myth out there that he kind of sneezed on a plate. And because of his mucus having lysozymes in it, he eventually saw that there was a halo around one of his plates um, and that the lysozymes in his mucus killed the bacteria. However, this is potentially improbable. Alexander Fleming was almost obsessed with trying to find different ways that the body attacks or, or tries to man manage infectious diseases. And what we don't, while we don't really know, we can look at his lab notebooks for some sort of insight into what happened. On November 21st in 1921, bacteriophage was written on the top of Alexander Fleming's notebook. Really? Yes. So bacteriophages were discovered at this point, and they, they could have been 
Um, a lot of people were, were thought that the bacteriophage could be a great therapeutic agent. So we don't really know what Alexander Fleming's initial research was on this, but he did have the word bacteriophage on the top of his lab notebook. And below he had a picture of a plate, a culture plate that we grow bacteria with three streaks. So he had Staphyloid Aucus from his nose. We have Staph Albus from Hazlitt and uh, another microbe labeled as pneumos. Then he says he took his own nasal mucus, put it in a tube, diluted with saline, centrifuged it, and then placed a drop of clear fluid on each of the three streaks and incubated it for 18 hours. And what he found was that the Staphyloidacus, the Staphyloid from his nose, which he named AF Aucus, grew nothing. <laughs> I, I like the, the shorthand there. AF Aucus? Yeah. Alexander Fleming. Yes. Aucus. Uh, so that streak grew nothing. And so he's like, wow, there is an agent in here that does seem to be killing bacteria. This is so exciting. But it didn't do anything to the other microbes. And as he tested it on a number of other microbes, nothing really happened. You see, lysozymes are a pretty weak form of bactericidal agents. And this is part of, this is sort of a trend with Alexander Fleming. He finds something. He's like, guys, look at this. It's so cool. And everyone's like, that's nice, Alec. Why don't you go sit down on your bench? And Alexander Fleming had an interesting bench. You see, he didn't like to be neat and tidy. He would keep cultures for two, three weeks at a time, just so he could check on them every once in a while and see if anything interesting were to grow up. He would have 40 to 50 cultures before discarding them, but always examine them closely at the end before discarding them. Which, like, honestly, I've done that before, and I just have, like, a bench full of Petri dishes. It happens. Yeah, you should take a look at four degree and work. There's a lot of Petri dishes there. Yeah, you gotta keep those things around. You never know what's gonna pop up. Exactly. So Fleming spent the next few years examining other parts of the body that might possess the lytic agent. The lytic agent was in mucus membranes, most internal organs, tissues, especially cartilage. He found it in rabbits. He found it in guinea pigs. He found it in dogs. It was everywhere. Fleming presented his work on lysozymes in December 1921, but no one was really interested. We now regard this as a major discovery, and it's something that we're taught all the time in basic microbiology classes, but at the time, no one thought it had of any significance. Isn't that crazy? Like, no one bared to think of it, but it's a common thing that we use in research nowadays. Yeah, crazy. So Alexander Fleming, he needed to have a stream of lysozymes in order to conduct his experiments to see where it was lytic and where it wasn't lytic. Do you know what he, he used to do? No, I'm curious though. So he did something which I think is like a little over the board, and I think there's a much easier way to get this. But he needed tears, right? Tears include lysozymes. So he would call his lab mates in and squeeze some lemon in their eyes and then collect their tears. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm like, have you ever heard of an onion? Like, that would do just fine. Yeah. And would the lemon not affect, like, the acidity of that? Like, Yeah, I don't know. It just seems way over the top. Like, I could, I'll cry for you, but don't squirt no lemon in my eyeballs. They better have been paid well for that. That's all I got to say. I mean, they were researchers. They're not paid well. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, 
So, so then they, you know, were done with the researchers. They were done having lemon beans squirt in their eyes. So they started paying children, boys, to come in and cry for them so they could collect the tears and do the research on the lysozymes. And they paid the boys pennies, which was more than what they were paying the researchers. But um, I'm not really sure how they got the boys to cry. They didn't say they squirted lemon, but maybe could have been anything. They probably did not want to reveal what they did. Mm -hmm. So from 1922 to 1932, Alec published eight papers on lysozymes. So he did this. Guys, we're still at the point where we haven't even got to penicillin yet. He's worked on syphilis. He's worked in World War I time. He's worked through the Spanish flu, the, the flu of the 1918 flu. And he's discovered lysozymes. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about his discovery, which happened on September 1928. The story goes that Alexander Fleming went on holiday in July 1928, placing a handful of plates into a pile at the end of his bench. Some say near a window, some say near a door, some say the window was open, some say it wasn't. But whatever would occur, when Alexander Fleming came back, he was looking through the plates discarding some and examining others. When one piqued his interest, he looked at it and said, hmm, that's funny, pointing to the plate, to the now famous zone that showed disappearing Staphylococcus colonies around a blob of mold. And this, believe it or not, Fleming preserved. He had the insight to preserve this famous plate, and you can now go see it, see it in the British Museum, which we did. It was super cool. Totally did. Totally did it. Because we're not microbe nerds. So, once again, he was like, guys, look at this. And the scientific community was like, Alec, that's really not that interesting. Come back when you have something real. But there is something a little strange that I found about this. So the whole story goes that he went on holiday in July. And he came back, comes back in September. But here, we don't see the presence of penicillin in his notebook until October 28th, which is over a month from the time where he supposedly discovered the mold. So if he thought this was so cool, what was he doing for the next month that he wasn't recording in his lab notebook? I don't know. I don't know if he had like some things to finish up or whatnot, but I don't know. It seems a little shady. So on October 28th, Fleming wrote about penicillin in his notebook showing an experiment where he grew multiple bacteria against the mold, similar to what he did with the lysozymes, where he had strips of the various microbes he was trying to see if they were susceptible to the mold with the penicillin culture growing down the middle. And he noticed that a strain of Staphylococcus actually had a zone of inhibition. And so this meant that the penicillin was inhibiting the growth of Staph. So he asked a colleague if they would ID the mold. So below him was Latouche, who is a mycologist. And he identified the strain as Penicillium robrum, which was wrong. But fortunately, he got the right genus because that'd be pretty weird if we had penicillin and it wasn't part of a Penicillium fungus at all. Right. So they then went on to continue to test penicillin. So Craddock, one of Fleming's underlings, became the first person to use penicillin clinically. First, by ingesting the mold grown in milk. He said it tasted like Stilton cheese. He also had a chronically infected nasal atrium, so Fleming integrated or Fleming irrigated the atrium with penicillin. 
Hmm. It kind of changes my viewpoint on the history of penicillin. Yeah, it was actually used quite a bit before the official first use of penicillin in clinical trials. And also, like, I just love, like, on all these old science stories from the 20th, 19th century, 20th century, like, all the scientists are like, oh, let me just try this on myself, which Almworth Wright did that, too. He made a typhoid vaccine. He tried it on himself. It didn't work, and he ended up getting um, typhoid fever. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, like, just a thing back then. They're like, well, I got this thing. I'm going to test it out. And I don't know. That's some some courage, I guess, to be able to be like, I don't know what this is going to do. but um, Yeah, it's definitely a lot of credit to them for them testing on themselves first, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So an, an assistant of Fleming and fellow marksman developed a pneumococcal conjunctivitis in his eye which is not very good if you're a marksman you need your eyeballs to work and so Fleming decided that he would give him some penicillium in his eye and he supposedly got better although there was no further evidence on whether or not he won the match so I guess he got healthy but I don't know if he won the match so like when you say he gave him penicillium in the eye he gave him the actual microbe straight to the eye yeah at this point they hadn't uh, isolated the culture. They haven't idol- isolated the compound which produces the antibacterial effect. So they're just, yeah, swabbing this penicillin, penicillin fungus all over the place and be like, does that work? Does that work? How do you feel now? So on May 10th, 1929, he published the paper on the antibacterial action of cultures of the penicillium with special reference to the isolation of B. influenzae. So this became the first published paper on penicillin as a, ther- as a potential therapeutic. And scientists at the time really did not appreciate Fleming's discovery. His mentor, Elmuth Wright, was supportive of him and tried to nominate him for the Royal Society, which is one of the most prestigious scientist societies you can get into. And Elmuth Wright actually nominated Fleming 1922, 1923, 1924, 1925, 1926, 1927. And he never got in. Now, after you get nominated five years, you have to take a three-year hiatus. So then Almuth Wright tried to nominate him for 1930, 1931, 1932, 1933, 1934. And he never got in, which just sort of shows you that a lot of the people of the time did not find Alexander Fleming to be this genius or to be this great scientist that we label him today. I'll give him credit. He seems to have had a really good uh, supportive mentor. Yeah. I mean, I, his mentor seems fabulous. And he was with them for the majority, for the rest. So Fleming and Elmreth were together until Elmreth retired. And then Fleming took his post. So they were together forever. They must have been really close in a lot of, lot of different ways. So in 1930, the American mycologist Dr. Charles Tom reclassified the penicillin to its proper name, of penicillin notatum. Over the next 12 years, Fleming worked on vaccines, wrote a book, Recent Advances in Serum and Vaccine Therapy, and got involved with chemotherapy, which came about around this time. In 1940 and 1941, we have the early years of World War II. He published seven papers and lectures advocating for combining vaccines and chemotherapy. So throughout this whole time, he really was not doing much with penicillin, but focusing his efforts elsewhere. And it is here I'd like to tell you two stories that I think just describe Alec's personality a little bit more. 
So the first is about a snooker game, which is the British form of pool, I guess. It's kind of like pool or billiards or, you know, that game with the balls and the sticks. Is that the one with the, the poles in the board they get to play around? I don't know. I just saw that it was sort of like pool. Okay. At any rate, so he was playing. He, he loved to go after work to go and play these games with people. And so he was playing this game with people, uh, with, with a fellow, and he, he was part of this club. And so they would go and play these games. And so he was playing a snooker game with them. And they were kind of neck and neck. They weren't really doing anything. And then Alec was kind of like, you know, it's getting kind of late. I got to go home to the missus. And so he takes his turn. And in one foul swoop, all the balls land in the holes and he wins the game in, in just one move. So he was just like an excellent sportsman. But he didn't want to win for the sake of winning. He enjoyed kind of the company, even if he was a quiet and kind of stoic person. And then the other story I want to share about Alec. So he did have a son and he had a wife. And his brother actually married his wife's twin sister. So, which is kind of weird, but like, I guess it's not that weird. So he was fishing this one time and he caught fish and he was pretty excited about it. And he was also fishing with his son who got dumped overboard and his son didn't know how to swim so his son is like drowning and he's like wait I'm just gonna catch this fish real quick and then I'll like worry about you son and the friend that he was with fishing with actually had to grab his son out um, and, and pull him back into the boat so Alec was just like a very laid-back kind of dude for sure he's like one of those people you say yo mama so fat and he's like I don't even care you can't tell a yo mama joke that's gonna get him mad curious to what his son thought about him i don't know book did not go too much into his son <laughs> um but from all i mean it went into a little bit and didn't seem like he 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 liked his dad he was just like yeah he's a little quiet he's he can sometimes be a little terse but from all accounts he was a good dad that sounds good just occasionally doesn't try to help his drowning son you know gotta catch that fish well i have to say like his experiences in world war one definitely seemed to uh shape the research for the rest of his life because he focused on people so much afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at this point, it is time to bring in our second hero of the story, who is Howard Florey. So Howard Florey was 17 years Fleming's junior. And like Fleming, he enjoyed sports. He went to Oxford to research with the highly acclaimed Sir Charles Sherrington, who was a world leader of neurophysiology and recipient of the Nobel Prize in 1932. Also, he was the president of the Royal Society. Which was the society that Alexander Fleming was nominated to get into like a 10 billion times. times. Yeah, and never got into. Well, he did eventually, but spoiler alert. <laughs> what is that? Uh, 80 year spoiler or something year like spoiler that? 80 year spoiler alert. So Flory also won a Rockefeller Traveling Fellowship, which brought him to America for a year. He spent some time in New York, then popped over to Boston around Christmas, flew out to Chicago for the new year, and finished up his time in Philadelphia. Damn, that guy got around. Yeah. His research was mainly in inflammation and microcirculation of blood, lymph nodes, mucus secretion, and gastric function. Surprisingly, he even worked on lysozymes in the 30s. Yeah, the thing that Alexander Fleming discovered. Right. 
Who would have known? So this brings us to another really absurd story that kind of ties into everything that we've been talking about. So in 1934, George Dreyer, who was a friend of Sir Elmuth Wright and of Alexander Fleming and the professor of pathology at Oxford, died suddenly, unexpectedly. And there was a need for a new chair of pathology, which was arguably the best and most influential spot for a pathologist to be in Oxford. Naturally, the spot was sought by many. So the board sat down to decide who would take the spot. It was a hard decision, and many, many names were thrown out. But finally, a decision had been reached. When who should barge in but a powerful and influential secretary of the Medical Research Council, Edward Mallenby. He immediately reversed the decision and declared the young and unexpected underqualified, compared to many of the other candidates at least, Howard Florey would get the position. Is that crazy? Yeah, that's like out of nowhere, right? Yeah, so they, they had decided what they were going to do, and they were like, had the gavel in their hand, ready to be like, meeting adjourned. I don't know if it was quite that dramatic. And in comes a super influential person. I guess he was late because his train got stuck. And so he just like came in. He's like, no, 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 you guys don't know what you're talking about. Let's, let's give this kid a shot, Howard Florey. Now, I'm imagining like a movie set where there's two large doors, and he like, bangs him open with his hands and he's like walking down this hall to this group of people he's like hold it and he's like wait stop that stop that there will be no wait that's a different movie uh but you know it's a good thing they did because flory at oxford once we had flory at oxford seven years later the world got penicillin what a coinky dink huh yeah so now that flory was the head of pathology at oxford he had to assemble a team and one of his team members he decided to take on was Ernest Boris Chain. But that will have to wait until next episode. That's right. Sorry, everyone. But there's way too much in this story to cram into one episode. So this will have to be a two-parter. So check back in two weeks when we conclude this epic story of penicillin. As always, if you'd like to see any of our sources, you can find links to them in our show notes or check out the three blog posts on our site on penicillin. If you'd like to show us a little love, please consider donating to our Ko-Fi, also in the show notes. Or you can share the podcast with a friend, family member, or lab mate. We hope you enjoy listening, and... We hope to see you next time! Bye! Bye.